How much damage does a ton of carbon dioxide generate, and can we put a number on it? My guest today, Gernot Wagner, says yes, but that cost is hard to pin down. He advocates cap-and-trade, which generates a price that adjusts to our understanding of the damages, while others want a carbon tax, a mechanism that's much less flexible but that creates a set price. Today on Bionic Planet, we dive into the science of setting a price on carbon dioxide emissions. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet. And today we do so by picking up our conversation with environmental economist Gernot Wagner, co-author of the book Climate Shock, The Economic Consequences of a Hotter Planet. We also examine the advantages and disadvantages of a carbon tax versus cap and trade. President Hollande said, not everybody with the same methodology, not everybody with the same technique, and not everybody at the same price. Yes, but we have evidence that certain mechanisms work better than others. That's Angel Gurria, Secretary General of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, speaking at the December Climate Talks, opening a segment that we call... We'll always have Paris... We'll always have Paris, as in the Paris Agreement, the global roadmap to a low-carbon economy, an agreement that, if successful, can literally save our civilization from the most catastrophic impacts of climate change by completely overhauling our global economy. It's a massive undertaking and mostly ignored by major media. But I've promised to cover some aspect of the December talks in each episode of Bionic Planet. And today I want to pull out just one little snippet to set up part two of our conversation with Gernot Wagner. I recorded this snippet during the same panel discussion that I harvested for part one of my interview with Gernot. That panel included five heads of government, from German Chancellor Angela Merkel to French Prime Minister François Hollande, who Guria referred to in that opening statement. Interestingly, I heard very little talk in Paris about today's subject, namely what a price on carbon should be, and a lot about whether a carbon price should be implemented through A, cap and trade, where you basically put a cap on total emissions and then let companies buy and sell emission allowances, or through B, a carbon tax, where the government just sets a price on emissions and then charges it. Now, emission trading schemes, or ETSs, are proliferating around the world, mostly at the sub-national level, that's the state level or the provincial level. And the Canadian province of Quebec belongs to one ETS, and that ETS is linked to the U.S. state of California. The province of British Columbia, meanwhile, has a carbon tax, and the province of Alberta plans to implement one. 
Now I'm going to replay a brief snippet of the explanation that Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau gave in Paris. This isn't the long three-minute digression that I played in last week's episode, but just a brief little snippet to fill you in. We have four different provinces that represent about 86% of the Canadian economy that have actually moved towards putting a price on carbon. British Columbia has a world-class carbon tax uh, that is revenue neutral and that has been uh, really encouraging in a way that suits the British Columbian economy uh, the kind of innovative uh, actions by companies and individuals uh, that should be rewarded uh, in our our low-carbon economy that we're moving towards. Ontario and Quebec, our largest provinces, uh, have committed to a cap-and-trade initiative uh, alongside California uh, that is also uh, recognizing that we need to put a clear price on carbon to signal to industry, uh, to producers, to uh, consumers where we are going as a society and reward people who are making smarter decisions about including externalities. And even our province of Alberta, uh, which, as many of you will know, uh, uh, contains a large part of Canada's oil sands, uh, has, uh, with the change in government this spring, uh, taken significant steps uh, towards uh, demonstrating uh, that Canadians right across the country are committed to concrete actions on climate change, which includes a hard cap on emissions uh, from oil sands development, uh, but also uh, an ambitious price, uh, an ambitious uh, carbon tax. Did you follow that? British Columbia already has a carbon tax, and it has since 2008, or about eight years, while Alberta plans to implement one next year although that's running into opposition now. Meanwhile, Quebec has had an ETS, or emissions trading scheme, since early 2014, or about two years, and it's linked to California's ETS. You can read about the genesis of that linkage at ecosystemmarketplace.com forward slash articles forward slash Quebec. The provinces of Ontario and Manitoba plan to join that linkage soon, while cap-and-trade programs are proliferating around the world. My guest in the second half of today's show, Gernot Wagner, advocates cap-and-trade over a carbon tax. And, truth be told, so do I. But Gurria raised an interesting counter-argument. And here I like to say, perhaps with the exception of, um, uh, of Ontario and Quebec, with a link to California, Practically all the other ETSs that we know of, including the seven pilots in China, and four times, four times that we have attempted to take a price uh, to take off in Europe, we have not been able to make it. Whereas the countries that went for the tax did it very efficiently. And I have to say here, the British Columbia example in uh, Canada itself works like a charm. Why? Because it started low. And then they plan it over time. People know when it's coming. They haven't lost any competitiveness. They just know it's going to be increasing over time. Now it is, and it has modified conduct. So far, in other words, cap and trade programs outnumber carbon tax programs. But the carbon taxes are, he says, delivering better results, in part because the price is predictable. 
which we'll see in the second half of our show is not the case with cap and trade. But that's by design. Now, Gurria points out that a carbon tax works best when it's introduced gradually. But that, of course, is how caps are usually implemented. They start high and come down over time. With me so far? Good. He continues. The people in British Columbia not only respond to price stimulus, but they also are proud of the fact that they have the mechanism. And therefore, they act with this pride of saying, we are you know, doing better. Uh, and because it's a, it's a regional, provincial mechanism, they kind of you know, say we can do better than the next, than the next province uh, up or down. So people will support a carbon tax, or presumably a carbon market as well, if they understand why it exists. And, like U.S. citizens did in their country's race to the moon back in the 1960s, they'll even embrace it, as the Swedes have, too. Sweden has 100 euros per avoided ton of CO2 equivalent today. Uh, They started uh, way below, and then they started jacking it up. And, again, it works. It does not seem to affect the competitiveness. So I would say that we already know that, generally... Uh, taxes seem to work uh, better than the ETS systems. So why do so many of us love cap and trade? Politically, people don't like to talk about taxes. But it sounds a little trivial as a reason, because effectively, if it works better, and we know it works better, and we know it bites, and it changes conduct, then perhaps it should be uh, the choice. Now, I'd argue there's more to cap and trade than just political expediency. To me, cap-and-trade has the added element of flexibility. Namely, the price will adjust based on emission reductions achieved. So if we fail to reduce enough, the price will automatically go up, increasing pressure to reduce. While, at the same time, trading pushes money to the most efficient emission reduction strategies and technologies. But, as Guerrillo points out, one man's flexibility is another man's price risk. And unlike climate change itself, this isn't really a settled science. Still, I think anyone would be hard-pressed to argue with Korea's final words. Now, the political hurdles to carbon pricing can become opportunities if the funds are redirected to advance more inclusive social and economic agendas. Very good examples of reduction in subsidies and applying it to the poorest and also the taxes, applying it precisely to solve the problem of climate change. So let me finish by saying, dear friends, let's design, develop, and deliver together and fast better climate policies, including a big fat price on carbon for better lives. Thank you. You're listening to Bionic Planet podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. Do you like what you've heard so far? Do you want to hear more? If so, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or TuneIn or Stitcher or whichever service you use to access us. And let the good people of the world know what you think by leaving an honest five-star review, because the more good reviews we get, the more ears we get. And the more ears we get, the more funding we get. And right now, Bionic Planet has no funding of its own. It's essentially a labor of love, and I'm both the labor and the love. Bionic Planet is written by me, produced by me, and hosted by me, albeit with voluntary support from my colleagues at Forest Trends and Ecosystem Marketplace. 
If all you do is subscribe, that's great. But if you want to help us materially, you can make a tax-deductible donation to Bionic Planet through Ecosystem Marketplace or Forest Trends. That's EcosystemMarketplace.com and Forest-Trends.org. But be sure to let them know it's to support Bionic Planet. That way, the money will go towards the freelance budget of Ecosystem Marketplace so that we can commission more stories for the site that we, in turn, can adapt into coverage for Bionic Planet. If the tax deduction isn't that important, you can also support me directly through the Donations tab at bionic-planet.com. Ultimately, I'd like to scale this up, make it big enough to attract commercial advertising, because that means I'm reaching enough people to make it worth your while to support this effort. And reaching people is what this is all about. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, email me, stevezwick at steve at bionic-planet.com. Once again, that's steve at bionic-planet.com. My guest today just left his position as lead economist with the Environmental Defense Fund to become a research associate and lecturer on environmental science and public policy at Harvard. His name is Gernot Wagner, and he's here because of his book, Climate Shock, The Economic Consequences of a Hotter Planet, which he co-wrote with Martin Weitzman, also of Harvard. The book has the distinction of being named both one of the best economics books by the Financial Times and among the books most likely to save the planet by the Independent Publisher Book Awards. This is the second half of our interview with Gernot. You can find the first half on our website, bionic-planet.com. It was our inaugural episode, and it's called How a Carbon Price Can Ease the Climate Shock. You can also find it at ecosystemmarketplace.com forward slash articles forward slash climate shock. In our first discussion, we examine the arguments in favor of a price on greenhouse gas emissions. And if you're new to this subject, I encourage you to give it a listen. Today, we'd agreed to discuss the challenges of calculating that price. But I began instead by asking if he'd be willing to weigh in on the debate over a carbon tax versus carbon trade. I'd be happy to get into this, but in some sense, cap versus tax is a very academic debate that sort of floats economists' boats that actually has little bearing on the real world other than sort of for the tactical food fights, which frankly are sort of, you know, important, but in some sense are also meaningless because, you know, for crying out loud, we're all trying to do the same thing here. And yes, there are certain differences between the two instruments that matter, but either of the two is so much better than the status quo that the differences actually don't really matter all that much. The operative question in all of this is, what is the what is the actual price, right? Now, in the long run, that doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter in the sense that the point in the long run is to get emissions down to zero or below zero for that matter. Well, if we can do that at low cost, that's a success, right? So we shouldn't judge an emissions trading system itself by its price, assuming the cap is strong enough um, to accomplish what needs to get done. Now, of course, right, the, the shadow price, the price of the allowance is in fact a proxy of the strength of the system. That is true too, of course. Um, 
And the big question then is, well, how do you evaluate where we are and where we need to go? And I mean, sadly, of course, the verdict really is that we need to go a lot further than where we are today. That's not a secret, right? There's basically, there's no place anywhere with the sole exception of Sweden, and there are two only certain sectors within Sweden, certain sectors within the Swedish economy that have a sufficiently high carbon tax where it may be appropriate to debate whether the tax is the right value. Anywhere else on the planet, including in the Swedish sectors not covered by the carbon tax, and there are many, the question is not what should the right price be? The question is, how can we increase the price from where it currently is? Because it is much, much, much too low. You spent a lot of time in the book explaining the way that a social price on carbon is calculated. You started with uh, the DICE model. Um, DICE stands for Dynamic, Integration, Dynamic Integrated Climate Economy. And then you explained three other models. Can you maybe just give us the basics of how we calculate the social cost of carbon? Well, actually, so the social cost of carbon is in many ways a sort of a misnomer, beginning with the word carbon. Uh, it actually measures the social cost of one ton of CO2, not C. There's a difference. Um, now, what it does do is essentially quantify what we know or the damages associated with one ton of CO2 emissions emitted into the atmosphere today. Now, that ton stayed up there for a while, for centuries, millennia, um, on average, and it does a lot of damage. Now, one can quantify that damage. Of course, the big, big problem is that, like, this is where the conservative part comes in, we can quantify the known knowns, or you know, some of them. We can't quantify the known unknowns. And of course, we have no idea by definition what the unknown unknowns are, other than essentially trying to point to which direction they would go in, right? Um, do the known unknowns point to a higher number than we currently calculate um, or a lower number? And sadly, most signs indicate that most of these known unknowns point in the direction that the current estimate, the $40 per ton of CO2, is a woeful underestimate of the true cost of, of that ton, the true cost of climate change. So in other words, the social cost of carbon we currently use, the $40, that's the U.S. government figure, um, can only be a lower bound of what we ought to use to incorporate the cost of climate change. In the book, you made a very strong case for it being a lot higher. What's your, what's your own ideal price? Actually, in, in, in the book, in Climate Shock, we actually very deliberately declined to give a figure at all. What we do in many ways is to point to how uncertainty um, itself is costly, how not knowing is costly, and how, frankly, almost everything points to the fact that the $40 that is calculated based on the known knowns, based on what we know, can only be a, low, a lower bound because, frankly, everything we don't know, most everything we don't know, points to a higher price. Can you give us a, a concrete example of a, a, a known unknown? <laughs> Actually, it's, it's sort of as, a, as an instructive example on this, on the known unknowns part. Um, 
the fourth assessment report of the IPCC, the one that came out in uh, 2007, um, included um, an estimate of sea level rise, global average sea level rise, in, so I did six executive summary. Um, and that was based on two things. Um, thermal expansion, as in warmer water takes up more space, and we can calculate that fairly well, or fairly accurately, because we know how much water there is in the oceans, we know how much the warming is, of course, lots of uncertainty around that too, but if you, know, if you assume a certain degree of uh, warming, you can estimate thermal expansion, the effect of thermal expansion on sea level rise. Now, turns out water also rises because ice melts. That's, of course, not a secret. Now, ice melts in two parts, sort of inland glaciers, as well as the poles, right, polar ice caps. Now, in many ways, of course, polar ice caps is what ought to concern us more because there's a lot of more ice. There's a lot of more potential sea level rise. Uh, but it turns out in 2007, the uncertainty around um, global average sea level rise by the end of the century, for example, based on the melting of ice caps, was so large that the scientists, part of this report, declined to provide an average figure, right? They gave us a range. Uh, they gave us pages and pages of estimates of what is going to happen. But the summary statistic, the summary figure, did not, in fact, include the fact that polar ice caps melt. Now, that's a known unknown, right? Of course, it ended up in a footnote. It's not a secret that ice melts. Um, but the estimate we had after 2007 didn't, in fact, include that fact. Now, 2013, fifth assessment report was different. Um, scientists, in that case, did agree to include an average estimate of what will happen when polar ice caps melt um, into the summary statistic. And lo and behold, that estimate went up. Of course it does. <laughs> um, so that number basically turned from in a known unknown to a known known. Now there's a rate, there's an uncertainty range around it, right? We don't know for sure. We we can't. Uh, but of course we know that that it is in fact an increase, right? That the contribution of melting polar ice caps is in fact positive to global sea level rise. Positive in the sense that it in the sense that it raises sea levels. So it, it's a negative consequence of climate change. Um, but that's a good example of a statistic, a quantity that frankly was a known quantity or a known process, but turned in, within five years from a known unknown into a known known in the sense that the summary statistic now includes the actual estimate. And, and frankly, that's big news, right? That's sort of big scientific news in the sense that we are not confident enough to add the estimate of the melting of polar ice caps and their effect on global average sea level rise to this summary statistic. Um, that's good news in a scientific sense. Of course, it's bad news in the sense when you look at the result because now the, our estimates, of course, increase by quite a bit. And, of course, the uh, deniers then use that adjustment to try and discredit the science. Um, can you walk us through the process of turning this uncertainty into a price on carbon? 
Um, sure. So, I mean, what, what happens in, in, a, in a rough sense is that right, you have the physical event, let's say sea level rise. Now, of course, what we really care about as a society is the economic damages associated with that event, right? The, like, how does it hurt you personally? Um, the link there is what's called a damage function, as in for every degree of warming or every meter of sea level rise or foot of sea level rise, what are the economic damages associated with that? So in, a, in theory, what you would have is a damage function with every one of these potential events. And then you look at all these damages, you add them up, you discount them back to the present, and you can link them to the additional ton of CO2 emitted into the atmosphere today, right? Every one of these tons causes some damage. Um, and that damage associated with that ton is, in fact, its optimal social price, right? So we're um, not going to ban that ton of CO2 emissions. What we're trying to do is price the full cost, right? So every time... You board an airplane, fly across the Atlantic, one ton of CO2 emissions. Well, what's the social cost associated with that one ton of CO2 that is not included, not currently included, uh, in the price you pay for your ticket? Um, <laughs> this is so complicated. And it was a real epiphany for me when you compared the amount of computing power devoted to programs like DICE to marketing research that Procter & Gamble do, because... They use massive amounts of data and computing power, while DICE uh, can run on a PC. I mean, that, that to me, says a lot about our priorities, right? In, in some sense. Now, I mean, of course, this is you know, sort of a, an imperfect analogy, if you will. I, I actually don't know for a fact how many PhD statisticians are used in order to determine the price of a right, toothpaste. Uh, but, of course, actually, it turns out there are massive data that go into these kinds of calculations. Now, when it comes to calculating the social cost of carbon, um, so the models used for that, they're typically, or they have been typically built by basically one economist and you know a grad student or two working with that economist. Um, and there are three models that are being used to calculate the US social cost of carbon. Now, it doesn't mean that those models aren't in themselves good representations of what we think ought to be calculated. But frankly, by now, most everyone, including those who built the models themselves, agree that they need to be overhauled. Um, and frankly, it's not just a matter of computing power, right? It's not just a matter of saying, oh, if we throw more resources at the problem, um, we can do a better job. We could, of course we could. Uh, but it's also a matter of essentially, in some sense, changing the structure of the models themselves. So this is where the uh, this kind of around financial economics comes in, right? By now, we know more about how to price assets, including assets with negative returns, like CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, we should use those lessons. We should use those lessons in trying to build uh, these integrated assessment models in a way that reflects both the latest in theoretical economics and also... Um, much more empirical knowledge around climate damages. What I found fascinating is how science and uh, temperature and price, it all fits together. And it really helped me to see how the understanding of uh, climate sensitivity, which is how such and such an increase in CO2 
will result in such and such an increase in temperatures. It helped me to see how that understanding evolved. And I was wondering if you could give us a step-by-step explanation of how climate sensitivity evolved and how that evolution feeds into the pricing model. Sure. So, I mean, in fact, there's several steps here. So uh, it begins with how much do we emit, but how much CO2 goes into the atmosphere. Now, it turns out it's not the CO2 that we emit year after year. It's the CO2 that's in the atmosphere that's most closely associated with um, climate change, with average warming. Um, So in other words, it says initial step is from emissions to concentrations. Then there's a link from concentrations to temperatures. And that's where climate sensitivity comes in. So climate sensitivity is this parameter that tells us what happens to global average temperatures eventually. Every one of these words matters, global average eventually, uh, as concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere double. Um, So that's the link between concentrations and temperatures. Then there's one between temperatures and economic damages. That's the damage function. Um, And just that step alone, the the link between uh, concentrations and temperatures, climate sensitivity, is in fact something that's been the vexing climate scientist for quite a while. As in, uh, there's a range, there's an uncertainty range, there is what's called a likely range of where climate sensitivity is. And ever since we first started looking at this seriously in the late 70s, 1979, the first National Academy study, um, we've had quite a range, quite an uncertainty range uh, around this parameter. Um, Now, unfortunately, uncertainty is not our friend here. In other words, not knowing the specific estimate is, in fact, costly in and of itself, mainly, of course, because if we knew for sure where things were going, we could adapt. We could, we knew what to do. Like, obviously, we would want to avoid climate change in the first place. Uh, but if we knew specifically where things were going, how many feet sea levels are going to rise, by when, we could adapt. It would still be costly, but at least we could adapt more easily. The fact that we don't know and especially the fact that we can't exclude extreme values of this range, uh, of this of, of this link between concentrations and temperatures, in itself is extremely costly. The not knowing is what increases, ought to increase, our right, social cost of carbon, the price of emitting one additional ton of CO2 by quite a bit. You also touched on something that I think we all wrestle with, which is how to position ourselves for this new reality. And you talked about two different investment portfolios, one for the world, one for a world in which we get this thing under control and one for a world in which we don't. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that a bit. In in some sense, this is sort of a thought experiment, right? So um, when you look at how many parts per million of CO2 there's in the atmosphere. Well, we are currently, we've passed 400 ppm, 400 parts per million. Um, we started at 280 pre-industrial times. And of course, I, uh, well, there, there are political moves to try to limit CO2. Fortunately, there are, right? CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, there's something called 350.org, right? Which is probably among the nerdiest organizations you could imagine. It's named after a ppm goal, of how much CO2 there ought to be in the atmosphere, right? So 350.org says we should not 
exceed 350 ppm. And that's probably, that's probably pretty reasonable goal. Now, eventually, of course, we want to go back to 280, but we certainly don't want to be where we are heading. Right, right now we're at 400, and frankly, we are on the way up. Right, CO2 in the atmosphere is increasing year after year after year. Um, now, here's a thought experiment. Well, imagine a world where we are, in fact, at 350 parts per million. Three, the 350 ppm scenario. Um, and on the flip side, imagine a world where you're, you're at 700 parts per million. Now, it turns out, unfortunately, getting to 700 ppm is a lot easier than getting to 350. 700 so it just means we should you know, keep going the way we are going right now. 350 means massive political action, massive, techn- massive technological change, massive interventions to get to 350, whereas 700 is basically where we are heading. Now, 700, of course, is associated with a lot of negative effects of climate change, would call catastrophic effects of climate change, and probably many, depending on your definition of economic catastrophe, many of these effects, in fact, are catastrophic. Um, meanwhile, 350 parts per million, of course, would have seen much less climate change, still plenty of of nasty effects baked in there as well. But overall, it's clearly a much better future. Now, imagine a 350 ppm scenario, imagine a 700 ppm scenario. And now imagine, right, given I'm an economist, right, sort of look at it from an economic perspective. So imagine you have a billion dollars to invest in each of these worlds. How would you think about your investment? Now, in a simple sense, of course, well, it turns out in a if you think the 700 ppm world is more likely, well, you to insure yourself against the worst consequences of climate change. Uh, you buy right, fresh water in Canada. You buy of assets that are, in fact, associated with safe bets, in, even in a world that is experiencing massive global warming. Uh, meanwhile, 350 parts per million is, well, that's sort of the happy world. And frankly, in order to get there, well, you need to invest in wind and solar and uh, low-carbon technologies. Um, and you will have very different, you'll make very different investment decisions. If you think we're heading towards 350 ppm, uh, than if we are heading towards 700 parts per million. I took it as more than just a, a thought experiment. To me... It's a, a core question. Should I have my retirement money and renewables and other technologies that will help us avoid the worst, or should it all be in life rafts and greenhouses and property in the woods and maybe the defense sector? <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, frankly, in, in many ways, it ought to be both. Now, it, I mean, this, this is not a lost cause, not at all, right? We clearly have to invest in the kinds of technologies that will that are currently already available and in many ways have to be deployed at scale, or for that matter, the kinds of sort of breakthrough technologies, right? This Bill Gates's Breakthrough Energy Initiative, uh, with a very clear aim of investing in technologies that are not currently available, um, that are these these high risk bets, but bets nonetheless that could potentially do a lot of good. Well, this is, of course, where venture capital-style investment comes in. So there is plenty to do on the clean, lean, uh, green tech front in order to do something about climate change in the first place. 
that said, of course, well, there is already plenty of climate risk baked in in where we are. So yes, it is a bit of both. Now, you know, both both speaking as someone who's hoping to avert the worst, you know, you you might call it as an activist, and uh, sort of as a rational response to where we are, I would say it is that the balance clearly ought to be on a lot more investment on the technology front in order to avoid climate change in the first place. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't really be investing in geoengineering, or at least we shouldn't be betting on it, right? Well, <laughs> that's a that's an interesting question. Now, I guess the question is what you mean by betting on it. Now, we shouldn't we shouldn't you know sit back and relax and essentially say, well, we don't have to decrease emissions at all. That's certainly not the case, right? Geoengineering is not the perfect solution to our problem. Um, like, if you will, you can liken it to of chemotherapy for the planet, right? Now, uh, should you start smoking just because an experimental drug works in a lab rat somewhere, right? An experimental cancer drug works in a lab rat. Should you take up smoking? No, of course not, right? Step one, stop smoking. Well, now, that said, if you walk into the doctor's office and you do, in fact, have cancer, well, that doctor would be remiss not to know what chemotherapy was. Now, the analogy, of course, isn't perfect, um, as no analogy ever is. Uh, but when it comes to geoengineering, uh, and what when I say geoengineering, I mean solar geoengineering, so um, increasing the albedo of the planet in order to reflect more sunlight back into space and cooling the planet that way. Just to clarify, solar engineering is this um, squirting of chemicals up into the atmosphere to act as a shield that keeps out the solar radiation, the sun. It's kind of like volcanoes do when they erupt, um, but with more clear intent. Um, well, it turns out from a, at a high level, we know that works. Volcanoes have been doing it forever, or for the matter, we know it works because we are wearing white between late, uh, between Memorial and Labor Day, and and our winter coats are black, right? So white reflects sunlight back and cools us off. Uh, black absorbs sunlight, um, makes us warmer. Uh, that what works for clothing also works for the planet. Um, and volcanoes have been um, spewing uh, sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere basically forever. And every time that happens, uh, global average temperatures decrease. So in principle, we know it works. As a matter of fact, in principle, like we also know that um, like by now we have plenty of climate model runs that essentially point to the fact that uh, there is a lot of potential here to do a lot of good. Um, in other words, Yes, we should do the research to find out more about solar geoengineering in itself. Now, does that mean we can sit back and not do anything on the carbon pricing front? Of course not. Right? We have to price CO2. We have to limit CO2 emissions. We have to decrease CO2 emissions. We have to get CO2 emissions down below zero. Um, but um, we also do to, ought to do the research on the solar geoengineering front, frankly, to figure out whether there's a there there. Now, like in many ways, the, the best science tells us that there is. Um, but, of course, a lot more research has to happen in order to get to a place where we can confidently say uh, whether and how um, 
solar engineering could in fact help us decrease climate risk. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, but that's that's also a whole other can of worms, and I think I'll have to do that on, a, on another show. I've got another program scheduled to address uh, that issue exclusively. We might um, have to just leave it there, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was Gernot Wagner, co-author of the book Climate Shock, The Economic Consequences of a Hotter Planet, from Princeton University Press. That about wraps up this edition of Bionic Planet. I hope you found it helpful, and maybe even entertaining. This whole debate about how to deal with climate change should be front and center. And if you think I'm helping to frame it right, then feel free to share this with friends and family, and be sure to subscribe yourself. And give us an honest review so that others can find us. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Zwick. Thanks for listening.